Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Hey, this is Paul Axton, and today I am here with Sharon. And Sharon, I think we're going to start a new series of podcasts. This was Sharon's idea, suggestion. I think it's a brilliant suggestion, as usual. And that is to just deal with some basic questions in theology, answer those questions. But uh, Sharon just got off work, and uh, so she's uh, kindly consented to come and do this podcast. Sharon, how's everything? Great. And t- today, tell us what what is it that you are curious about, and tell us why why you want to start where we're starting. All right. So today we are going to talk about original sin and the implications that come with original sin. The reason why I wanted to discuss original sin is because I myself have some questions about it, and I would like to, well, I have some qualms, to say the least, with original sin, but I can't yet understand an alternative to original sin. It's a wonderful question, and luckily it's one of those easy questions to answer, because I'm best with the easy, easy <laughs> All right. The origin of original sin is fairly easy to trace, and of course the uh, reading that you get in Augustine derived from Romans chapter 5. It's just a misreading uh, based on the Latin Vulgate that... Uh, Augustine apparently could not read Greek, or if he could, very little. And he's not reading Romans 5.12 in the Greek, but he's reading it in the mistranslation that you get in the Latin Vulgate. It's almost impossible. You almost can't blame Augustine. And should you doubt this story, the way that I'm relating the story, all you have to do is look at the difference between the Eastern Church and the Western Church from Augustine on. And in the Eastern Church, there's just no such thing as original sin as you have it in Augustine. Now, they'll talk about sin in a very different way, and we'll come to that. And so the the problem, I think, simply arises that in the uh, what became the standard reading of the verse in Western theology, Romans 5.12, let me give you the reading that should be there. Therefore, just as sin entered the cosmos through one man, and death through sin, so, so also death pervaded all humanity, whereupon all sinned. You may not notice the difference yet, but let me give you a bad translation, and maybe we can feel the difference. The difference is that the world through one man, therefore just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned. It's precisely the opposite of the translation that I just gave you. That is to say that the difference between the two readings is that in Augustine's reading from the Latin Vulgate, sin precedes or is the cause of death for all. Now, certainly it's the cause of death in the case of Adam, but Paul is reversing it in the case of everyone else, that death then spread to all, and because death spread to all, 
sin spread to all. And this connects then with our understanding of what sin is, that it's an orientation to death. And this is consistent with the picture in the New Testament that sin and death are interconnected, not in the sense that Augustine had it, but in the sense that death then will give rise to an orientation that characterizes sin or that is definitive of sin, that people will put into place certain authoritarian systems or the law, that the law in some way, life is in the law. And in fact, this is a kind of death-dealing lie. It's a deception. And so Augustine gets it exactly wrong. And the idea is that our problem is our orientation to the law of sin and death. We imagine that sin is the, the cause of death in every instance. That just is a practical, uh, we, we can just look and say, well, that ain't true, because we know uh, that, that, in fact, people who have never, and Paul is about to say that himself. He's about to say that in verse 14, if you look, he's going to talk about those who have not sinned. And so the idea that in some way that death is a result for all of us of sin is a mistranslation, I think, of Romans 5. So uh, what you get in this is the idea that in some sense, all human beings sinned in Adam, which already is confusing. How, how is that even a possibility? And because of that, everyone is born guilty. They're damned, or as later development, it, the, the development of the doctrine that you get in Calvinism, but it's already there in Augustine, and that is the doctrine of total depravity. That, oh, we're just born guilty. And the focus here is on guilt, that we're guilty because that's the only way you're going to make sense of this nonsense. And even Augustine and others are going to say, well, this is quite a mystery. It's quite a paradox. It's very hard to understand. Yeah, it's very hard to understand because it makes no sense. <laughs> but other than that, it's wonderful. <laughs> and so then you get the shift away from what sin is in the Bible to the notion that it's guilt. And out of that, it becomes the whole, the whole focus of the human problem is, you know, okay, well, we, we're guilty in the eyes of God, and so why did Christ die? Well, he died to deliver us from the anger of God, so you get the, the whole development. So it's a huge error, and, out of, and it's not that people have not looked on back and say, oh, whoops. So there's a whole departure that people are realizing that this doctrine is a development. But of course, you have in the Catholic Church and then in the Reformed Church, both then will take up this doctrine as if it's a kind of unquestionable doctrine. Now, my reading or what I'm saying here, you know, obviously, if you believe this is a biblical doctrine, you're not going to believe that what I just said is the case. And so what people will say is, well, Augustine didn't develop it, but it's clear that he did. And the other thing they'll say is there are other scriptures that talk about something similar. But what I, will, what I would suggest, while there, there may be some that hint at something like this, there are very few and that when the Catholic Church conveys this understanding, they're going to use precisely the, the language of Augustine 
And his language is right out of his mistranslation of Romans 5. That's what they're always going to be talking about, that in Adam we have all sinned. Let me give you a, a, a quote from here from Augustine. Nothing remains but to conclude that in the first man all are understood to have sinned, because all were in him when he sinned, whereby sin is brought in with birth. And so what he's going to say is sex is our main problem. And, and Augustine, as you know, from his personal life, was a huge deal for him, that, uh, that this, this is the thing that he's going to struggle with. And so historically, human sexuality, original sin, all get mixed up. Again, this has nothing to do with the Bible. It is Augustine. That all in him sinned and with birth, and so it is not removed save by the new birth. So why did Christ die? To get rid of this original sin. This And original sin, of course, is going to apply to, I suppose, conception, that as soon as you're conceived, uh, because of the manner in which you were conceived, you're, the, the sin and how it's transmitted, he never says exactly, but it's always related to, to the passions, sexual passion or sexual desire. He says, it is manifest that in Adam all sinned, so to speak, in mass. By that sin, we became a corrupt mass. And so the attitudes that you get toward human sexuality, toward sin, towards the atonement, it all then is, I think, partly, I, I mean, you don't want to, I don't want to overstate it, but this is a huge departure from biblical Christianity. What I'm understanding is that you're saying it's more of a negative worldview rather than creation is good, rather that creation is bad and needs to become good, rather than creation, humanity is good and can become corruptible. Yeah, and, and of course, I think that's right, just depending, you know, that what he, what, you know, what you mean, and I think what he means when you say creation, Human sexuality seems to be part of the way we were created. And as I think as good biblical Christians, we can embrace the fact that we procreate and we're supposed to do that. And that that comes with a, a particular that human passion per se, sexual passion, is not innately sinful. He's imagining that Adam and Eve in some way didn't have uh, sexual relations except after the fall and or that they did not have basic desires now the sense in which is human desire in some way a problem Paul will say that yeah it's our covetousness there is a corruption but he does not link it to sexuality but to something even more basic so creation is good and I think that you do get this sensibility both this is the, the way that this will come out in Augustine is his view of women. That women themselves, then, are kind of the corporeal essence of embodiment. And so femininity, or just being female for him, is already a problem. Now men, in his view, they contain both the female and the masculine spiritual possibility. <laughs> So that men are able, obviously, to think higher thoughts. And the only way women will, will be saved in, in Augustine is if they cling to their man. 
so that it's a very low view of women. And I think it is connected then to his, partly to his just corrupt notion of sexuality. He sees women as dangerous. They're the danger to human spirituality. And the way that it's transmitted then is through this sexual desire, that, that something bad in the soul for him is inseparable from sexual impulses. Of course, what he's thinking of is that it can totally overwhelm you. And I think he's thinking in his own experience that, uh, that it deprives you of your self-control. He says it deprives you of your rational thought. Isn't this just evidence that in some way passion, sexual passion, uh, means that we're fallen? You know, we don't want to blame it all on Augustine because strangely enough, even though the Eastern Church does not hold to that view of original sin, there's also... Uh, and there's no reason for it in the Eastern Church's view of sin or in even their view of creation, but you do then get mistreatment and denigration of women in the Eastern Church. Now, it's not our topic for today. It's a right. different topic, but I could give you the, my reason for that. And I think it is connected to the failure. You know, what, in the what way are we failed? I think we're failed not because of sexuality, but because our image bearing is male-female, and it is the relationship between the genders that is identified in Genesis and elsewhere in idolatry as the primary sense in which alienation enters in to the, to the human condition. Uh, that's the basic doctrine, that it's this original thing that happened in Adam. He says how it happened, we don't know. It's kind of mysterious. And then how it's generated, though he's saying it is sex, it's not entirely clear. He says whenever it comes to the actual process of generation, the very embrace, which is lawful, he's saying that it's lawful and honorable to get married, cannot but be affected without the ardor of lust enters in. This lust is the daughter of sin, as it were, and whenever it yields assent to the commission of shameful deeds, it becomes also the mother of many sins. Now from this concupiscence, whatever comes into being by natural birth, is bound by original sin. In Augustine and in the Western church tradition, what they're going to say about sin, it'll come true in Calvin, they're going to say that this is a great mystery. Isn't this the most mysterious <laughs> thing? And I think it's a great mystery, not because in the Bible sin is a mystery. In fact, in the Bible, sin is, is spelled out fairly clearly. And that's my, my own work is to say we can really sit down and say, here's the way that this sin system functions. It's not like this, and this, is, it, this has nothing to do with biblical Christianity. I think it just has more to do with this particular cultural moment. And this genius, I mean, you, you cannot deny that Augustine is this great genius of the church, but the problem of having these strong thinkers is that sometimes they're so strong that they kind of absorb people's understanding. I think that's what's happened. So next, one of the implications of Augustine's worldview and doctrine of original sin is the low view of women and this low view of human sexuality. 
what are some of the other implications that go into what are the lived out ways that perhaps we, the 21st century Christians, we get it wrong and we... Yes, it it (laughs) pervades everything. Right. I literally think there's not any doctrine that's not touched by this, this doctrine. This becomes absolutely clear in Calvin with his whole tulip, but tulip is a natural development Mm -hmm. uh, out of original sin. We can begin, though, with Augustine's own view and the problems there, the way in which that sin is propagated, and partly what's happening in the Roman Catholic Church, especially with the advent of the Reformation, but even prior to that, they're partly trying to resist an Eastern reading of the problem of sin, and what will be said in the Eastern Church is that sin is a corporate, the imitation is, is part of the problem that we learn sin. You know, if you read the early chapters of Genesis, when Adam has Seth, it says that Adam was created in the image of God and Seth is in the image of Adam. And so clearly a way of saying that sin is propagated is not through sex, but as in the Eastern Church, that in some way we're born into failed families that are our societies, uh, that just the human condition. What you get in someone like John Calvin as to how the, you know, the generation or, or how it's propagated, and they're both saying it's a mystery, but what Calvin will say is that it's a natural inheritance, again, through sex in some way, or that it's just by divine fiat, that divine ordinance has said, oh, this is People are sinful, and of course, that's Calvin. He just wanted everything to rely upon God's sovereignty, which is peculiarly perverse, because if this is the case, even sin then is flowing in. Of course, Calvin doesn't back away from this. He'll talk about evil as a necessary part of who God is. I would say again that this total perversion of Christianity, if it doesn't depend upon this, it certainly is at least in part derived from it. If we would state it most darkly, that this nonsensical notion, and it is nonsense, (laughs) they say it's a mystery, but this nonsensical notion gives rise to an equally mysterious or nonsensical notion of salvation. If our problem is original sin, then the solution becomes what will be developed in the doctrines of divine satisfaction or in the doctrine of penal substitution. That is, in TULIP, that if we're totally depraved, then there is an unconditional election in which we really can't do anything. Right. We just, uh, God does everything. And he doesn't do, every, do it for everybody. There's a limited atonement. Jesus didn't die for everybody. He just died for the elect. And then there is the whole idea of an irresistible grace, and mixed into all of this is a really terrible notion of predestination that is again linked to another topic for another time. But again, it is related because it is a Latin mistranslation of the doctrine of predestination. And so the misogyny of Augustine, the Western Church, the failure of full appreciation, I think, of what salvation truly is in Christ, that it is a deliverance from out of a real-world problem, that it becomes deliverance from 
anger of God. You know, what is uh, penal substitution? It's about that God is angry, and that's obvious because we're all guilty, and we're all guilty, you know, in this notion of original sin. Bad notion of sin gives us a bad notion of salvation, and all of this then kind of ends up in a uh, irrelevant understanding of what the church is. Right. How, do, well, how does this, you know, none of this relates to what we're doing as Christians in the church. So give your brief, <laughs> definite brief, definition of what sin actually is. If you go back to Genesis, that sin is, first of all, a lie. It's a deception. This is the way that Paul talks about it. And it's a deception in regard to the, the law, is the way Paul talks. But of course, it, in Genesis, we don't yet have the Mosaic law. We just have the divine command or prohibition. And so what it is meant there by law is something universal. It just could be our structures of authority. And so we're deceived about this orientation to in, in regard to the law. The, if you take the lie, you shall not die, that the words of Satan, this gets repeated again and again, that it's called the covenant of death in Isaiah. It's picked up in idolatrous religion that people imagine that they have access to life, and what they're calling life is actually death. This is the explanation in the New Testament that sin, then, is this misorientation, this deception that would displace life with death, displace God with a kind of absence, and we can put any number of things in this, this place, and it would displace human understanding, you know, the knowledge of God, understanding who God is, with a closed system, the knowledge of good and evil, that it then gives us, it results in shame, and shame then is not guilt. Shame is, a, is very much a corporate, corporeal, pluralistic experience. Shame is something that we immediately experience. It's not that it's completely unrelated to guilt, but guilt then just tends to focus on God. God has this problem that we're guilty, and so the resolution to our problem, because it's not really our problem, it's God's problem, is that Jesus paid the price to God to get us out of this anger problem he has, and so he won't throw us into hell. And of course, that's the problem with Augustine, is that you get a whole series of doctrines, because if original sin is the case, then for a long time, up, uh, you know, uh, until fairly recent times, we had infants being sent directly to hell that were not baptized. And the reason you need infant baptism, of course, is because infants are born guilty. And so to solve that problem, the church created limbo. The Catholic Church created limbo. That is that, well, we can't have these babies going and spending an eternity in hell. And so limbo is the option. The Abelard then proposes the idea, and it's uh, Pope Innocent III that poses the idea of the creation of limbo. But then it's John Paul II in 1992 that says limbo is no longer necessary that in some way we can uh, we have reasons to hope that infants who die without baptism he says may be saved and brought into eternal happiness and if this is the case then why but infant baptism so we have a whole history there in the catholic church 
surrounding a different, what it means to be converted or saved is a very different thing. It's primarily saved from original sin and hell. Catholics, they revise the, the doctrine. And so once you understand that, that sin is this corporate problem, we could say it's a problem with our families. It's a problem with mm -hmm. imitation of other people. How do we learn things? Even something as basic as, as desire, we imitate it. Mm -hmm. We see it, you know, and, yeah. and then we imitate it. There's no mystery then to what the problem is. The, the universal problem is death. And the way that I've just described this, that the way that it reads in Romans 5, is that death precedes sin in every instance other than Adam, right? That sin, Adam sinned and death entered in, and what Paul is really saying in Romans chapter 5, because death reigns, sin spread to all. And so part of the definition of, you know, we talk about the orientation, it's actually an orientation to death. Right. It's a death denial. That language may not capture the sense because that can manifest itself through any number of ways, maybe an infant number of ways. But the resolution of the problem of this death denial saying, you won't die, you'll be like gods, right. is death acceptance. And so faith, faithfulness, the faithfulness of Christ, is a reversal in that sense of what happened to Adam. In Adam, it's no mystery. You can trace this out. And that's partly what I've done in psychoanalytic literature. You can trace it out in religion. You can just trace it in every direction. That our problem is not uh, some mysterious original sin in that sense. Our problem is we die and we have an orientation to death that in fact is itself already a taking up of death. Now again, if you doubt this, what is evil? Well, evil seems to be when people kill each other. <laughs> Violence, murder, war, all of these things are connected to death and a kind or of... Or making it to where somebody would rather be dead than alive. Either, they, either it's a, a masochistic evil, and I think it, it is even mm -hmm. sadistic evil begins with a kind of masochism, that, yeah, you choose death, and in some way... Uh, imagine that either that's a resolution or that's an obliteration of the problem. What I find ironic is that so many Christians, uh, particularly Western American Christians, are so consumed with you know being resurrected and that they want to be resurrected to have eternal life, yet they spend their whole entire life miserable living in death before they're even dead. They want to be resurrected, but they're too afraid to die. And so they're missing the whole point the entire time. And this, you know, heaven is here on earth. It's not just a place to escape to. And with this infatuation, with this idea of the afterlife, people have missed out on their only life. That it's a Gnostic Christianity, in the what you do in this world, it, in some way, it's it doesn't matter, and and of course that's what there in Calvin, you know, even Calvin talks about that it doesn't matter if you your acts are good, 
they're still evil because of original sin. And so our lives, this material reality, because it is all, you know, the, the human genderedness, human, that it is all dismissed in a lot of Christian understanding. You, So what is salvation for many people? It's going to heaven when you die, escaping. And so the escape of this world becomes primary rather than an enjoyment, uh, I think, of a uh, king, the kingdom of God, as you describe it, that we can begin to enjoy resurrection life prior to the resurrection. That's the imagery of baptism, that we no longer are oriented to death. That's no longer the controlling factor in our lives. And we can begin to you know, enjoy the fruits of the Spirit. Right. Do you think that there's anything that could be salvaged from Augustine's notion of original sin? No. <laughs> I I thought that one was coming, especially when you were talking about the mistranslation. <laughs> it's like, well, <laughs> uh, I I mean, it's not, it's not that I don't appreciate Augustine on on many other topics. Right. Uh, his notion of privation, his notion of of you know evil, but. Uh, this one, I think, and of course, the, I'm not alone in this. This is the Eastern Church. This is St. Augustine is disgusting. Mm-hmm. Uh, that he's just, uh, that he missed he missed the boat on that one. I, I think it's just a, a tragic kind of error mm-hmm. that gives us a, a, a per, perverse sort of understanding. So some lines that I see connected that might not be there, maybe you'll tell me what you think on that, is... In Christians' idea of creationism, because you know we weren't there, and there's so many different theories on Genesis, and if it was literal, if it's figurative, if it was you know like four thousand or I don't know however long they think how long ago it was in this ultra conservative reading of Genesis. Uh, is very set on that it has to be a literal reading and that it has to be a young earth reading. And do you think that the idea of original sin is why some people are so uh, hostile about this, where they say you're not a Christian if you don't believe in young earth literal creation? Well, first of all, I'm not convinced that it matters how you read Genesis. In fact, what you get in Augustine's own literal interpretation, he gives us two commentaries on the book of Genesis, and he gets through the first 25 verses of the book in Genesis uh, in his literal translation, and then he arrives at the difficult verse on man's having been made in God's image and likeness, and it's precisely there that he breaks off because, uh, as John O'Meara says, it either tended to blasphemy or could not be reconciled with the Catholic faith. And Augustine later writes that he considers his literal attempt to interpret Genesis a failure. And so in this, his understanding of Romans 5, the mistranslation, even in his own attempt, he cannot make it fit back in. And, of course, the picture here is that uh, the way that Christ would fit into Augustine's view is that uh, Christ is just an afterthought. Whoops, things went wrong. And so 
were left in a world, even you know, in Augustine and Calvin both, a world that's not completely uh, repaired by Christ. It's a world that it, it, he maintains in which God still punishes us for Adam's misdeed. You're not going to get Augustine's doctrine of original sin. In other words, it's just not there. Right. It's there in, in the mistranslation, the Latin mistranslation of Paul's picture of the picture of the fall of man, but that's just a mistranslation. Right. So if you actually read the story in Genesis, I don't think it matters how you read that story. Uh, you're not going to get from the story itself uh, Augustine's notion. There's mm-hmm. nothing there about sex. And, right. uh, well, I think what happens is people don't read, they don't read Romans 5 through the lens of creation and Genesis 1 through 3. They read Genesis 1 through 3 through the lens of Romans 5. And so they're reading that into it and assuming original sin when reading Genesis 1 through 3. Yeah, I think, I think there's something to that. The, you know, young earth creationism is a development out of a kind of, it is a fairly within my lifetime, it came into predominance. The early church, you know, we're, we're not reading Genesis as, in that way. I think you, you may be onto something that people get attached. So Calvinism or uh, Augustinianism becomes the lens through which they see everything. And this is very dark. Yeah, it really is depressing. And so I would guess that if you were a, if you were a Calvinist and you think, man, this is, things are dark... I would think I, I I think I'd want to get it over with as soon as possible. Right. Let's let's shorten the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now whether that plays into it, but it is true that young earth creationism arises out of uh, people who were Calvinist, and it is through I think you know when we say a literal reading of Genesis, uh, it is a the word there comes to mean a particular thing in the modern period, because it uh, what the early church would have meant by that was something very different that you, they would also say, oh yeah, this is true, but they, they didn't mean that uh, you could count the days or you could, right. uh, it was a literary reading and that's what you get in the early church is they're taking this. Even Augustine will give us two commentaries, one that might be called a literal reading and one a theological or allegorical reading of Genesis Neither in neither instance does he come up with anything like young earth creationism. The unfortunate thing that's happened there uh, is that we've been captured by a kind of modern reading that certainly was not the Jewish reading. Right. Uh, had nothing to do with the way the Jews looked at it. It's not connected to the early church. It's a it's a late development. Uh, in conclusion, let's just say obvious things that might be wrong. With this, not just uh, that it's un, an unfair doctrine, the idea that first of all that would God punish innocent people, or would everyone be punished for a crime that someone else committed? Once you do that with original sin, then you're going to do that with Christ. You're going to okay. say, oh, that Christ now pays the penalty. It's obviously it results or is connected to a misogyny, in some way that we're all damned to hell. Uh, because of woman. Mm-hmm. And this, this will come up in various ways that for century has created a kind of anti-sex and anti-woman understanding. 
and it's so intrinsically tied to human sexuality. And so there is a, a long history of disapproval of human sexual love. It really contaminated. I mean, I think the crisis in the Catholic Church today with the child sexual abuse, the commitment to clergy that are unmarried, and just the attitudes for, for sin, they're not, I mean, this is flowing out of an Augustinian tradition that sex is dirty in some way, and you, you don't, you know, part of this, that something that you think is evil or sinful, instead of dealing with it and directly addressing it and saying, oh, well, maybe this is a human need or this is something we have to talk about, well, then you, you'd relegate it to the unspeakable and it produces a, a kind of perverse sexuality. The obvious thing that putting this upon the creation of a category like limbo, because it's, it's even, you know, it's just so obviously wrong that uh, an infant would spend right. eternity in hell, which Calvin delighted in. You know, this is a strange thing. In a sense, Roman Catholicism abandons that notion, but Calvin continued to, to delight in the uh, evil or, or in, in hell itself, you know. Uh, that he Which might be in and of itself, you know, a kind of living hell. I think it is. I think it is. that this There is religion that is sick, mm-hmm. and there is religion that will make you sick. And I think it's tied to uh, uh, forms of what is called Christianity today that really doesn't, you know, I don't mean to just be, just to condemn it across the board. There's good people in all of these things. Right, yeah, of course. But unfortunately, the teaching, if you really take these teachings, and and I think that for some that you're in these churches, but you've really not looked at this teaching. They've just inherited it. They've just inherited it, and they live with it. But I think it's yeah, I think it's time that we we move beyond this understanding. Move into an understanding of a living out of just life in and of itself rather than waiting for life to happen after we die. You don't need to wait. Yeah. I think that the way that you said it is very nice because I think that's our a lot of we always imagine the really important stuff is yet to come. And what Christianity is teaching us is just the opposite. There's no, actually, the really important stuff we're right in the midst of. Right. Sharon, it's a wonderful conversation. I'm so glad you asked this question. Thank you. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.